It's Thursday, June 8th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Are you feeling the Doug Mentum or is it Bergamentum? Either way, Doug Bergam is in. Who is Doug Burgum? By gum, he's a governor, Doug Burgum of North Dakota. He's a self-made billionaire. Well, Microsoft made him a billionaire, but he invented the software and then he bought up a bunch of downtown Fargo and is presiding pretty quietly over pretty good economic times in North Dakota, the least visited state in the country. Strap in, it's hugs, not dugs. Time for MTV Undugged as the GovDug wooed the Fargo faithful with vision and homespun personal history. Mom was driving to and from Fargo for work and every night after basketball or football practice, when mom was still working late in Fargo, I'd go to Helen Williams' house for a fabulous dinner, homemade rolls, and a wonderful chocolate milkshake. (laughs) Not a tough crowd in Fargo. Economic success brings all the boys to the yard. The distaste for being a culture warrior marks the Doug difference. I would say... Of all the Republicans who've actually held elected office, this former high school chimney sweep has the longest shot. But who knows? This is a party that once made Herman Cain the front runner. And a billion dollar software company should be more impressive than America's worst pizza. Expect to see I dig Doug signs dotting the Iowa landscape anytime now. On the show today, I break precedent and give you an Antoine Tig on a Thursday. Why the heck not? Two and six-sevenths of a week, time enough to check in and give lobsters. But first, David French, lawyer, legal expert, let's say, New York Times columnist, host of the Advisory Opinion podcast, joins me to break down a few of the latest cases out of the Supreme Court. Plus, I will give him a chance to answer some of the critiques that our more left-leaning legal scholar guests have offered over the past few days. David French, up next. So we've been talking to Supreme Court experts over the last couple of weeks, and mostly they've been from the left. We had Waldman, we had Vladek, and now joining me is David French. He is a columnist for the New York Times. Quite importantly, and much more to his enduring credit, he is the co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast from The Dispatch, where he talks from a more conservative perspective of how the Supreme Court and courts in general do their jobs. And we're going to look at some of the latest rulings, including some that have come out today. David, welcome back to The Gist. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So towards the end of the term, and we have a couple weeks left, a lot of major rulings to come, and we got a big one today. I, of course, speak of the monumental trademark infringement dog toy case. (laughs) Did you think I was going there first? Uh, The monument, the tra- I did not think you were going for dog toys first. The first sentence of Justice Kagan's decision, and I knew it was going to be be a 9-0 because I listened to oral arguments, and I don't know if there is a Latin phrase for this. There's usually a Latin phrase for everything, but I felt like everyone on the court was saying, oh, come on, please, with this. Anyway, the first sentence was, so if there's a Latin phrase for, really? The first sentence was, this case is about dog toys and whiskey, two items seldom appearing in the same sentence. Now, I could tell that Justice Kagan has not drunken enough whiskey for that to be true. 
But this was a case where the it's just a hysterical case where a dog toy marketing itself in the form of a Jack Daniels bottle calling itself bad spaniels claimed parody, claimed free speech. And the court said, come on, guys. (laughs) Well, you know, there's a lot of cases that are somewhat like this, that they push the law a little bit in one direction or pull it a little bit in another direction surrounding some like really unusual facts uh, that are interesting mainly because what they show is when you're talking about the court and if you pay close attention to the court you see that this sort of 6-3 division that everyone talks about all of the time isn't the dominant way in which the court does its business in the vast majority of its cases. So the way that people kind of pay attention to the Supreme Court of the United States is that you dive into a case and uh, you dive into cases that you really, really, really care about in only those cases. And you and you view the court through that prism and that prism entirely. And that's like the Dobbs, the abortion case. That's like the... Um, you know, multiple religious liberty cases. That's the way people are going to be viewing the Harvard affirmative action case. When there's an awful lot of cases that don't make the headlines where you start to see really how similar a lot of the justices' jurisprudence is to each other in, in big ways, in large areas. And interestingly enough, that similarity is one of the reasons why there's not controversy. Uh, A lot of the law in the United States is really more settled than people tend to think. And sometimes when people try to make big ideological judgments on the basis of Supreme Court cases, they can stumble and fall and, and kind of expose themselves. And you saw this a little bit in some recent cases. For example, there was an 8-1 decision recently involving whether or not you could sue members of a union who had engaged in conduct that could have sabotaged their employer's equipment. Glacier versus Teamsters, I believe. Exactly. And you saw people online saying, oh, look, this is the MAGA court really coming after workers. Well, that case was eight to one, right? Here you have a nine to zero. Uh, So it is, it's the kind of thing where a lot of the Supreme Court's work actually doesn't fit in those neat ideological lines. We've seen some interesting concurrences recently with this new pairing of Gorsuch and Judge Jackson. So um, there, there's a lot of what the Supreme Court does that doesn't sort of fit neatly into these pre-existing ideological boxes. Yeah, and uh, I, heard, I heard you and your co-host Sarah Isger trying to puzzle out why would there be this Jackson-Gorsuch dynamic going on? One explanation is, well, they're both relative newcomers who hit the ground running and maybe some of the old guard looked at them and gave them side eyes. So they formed a bond. I don't know. To me, that's a story. To me, that's like SCOTUS fanfic, but I don't know. It's as good a story as any. And it is true. They do seem to be getting along and agreeing with each other a lot. Yeah. You know, on on some of these cases where, you know, in particular, what's interesting about some of the justices, especially some of the justices who sort of have that more originalist reputation like a Gorsuch is what you're going to find is when you're dealing with somebody who is much uh, more purely originalist or textualist in their, the way they interpret statutes, you're going to find some interesting and sometimes really surprising alignment. So 
in particular, Justice Gorsuch, for example, has been, um, you know, indispensable in sort of ex expanding the in, in some criminal procedure cases, for example, sort of picking up the mantle that Scalia had, where Scalia would also often align with some of the more liberal members of the court on on criminal justice matters. Uh, Gorsuch, for example, has a really sweeping ruling in the in the state of Oklahoma regarding Native American rights, for example. And so you'll sometimes see these interesting alignments, particularly the more originalist, some of the more conservative justices are. There are areas in which they'll end up in surprising alignments with the more progressive justices. Is it the case that when we see a lot of concurrence and agreement, it's not on the highest stakes cases? I know that's not always the case. So you're you're going to see, for example, um, the Supreme Court just had a an outcome that surprised a lot of people in the Alabama redistricting case, right? So you had an a 5-4 majority ordering Alabama officials to redraw the state's congressional map to create an additional black majority district. That's a 5-4 decision with Roberts and Kavanaugh joining the progressive three. We've also seen really important, and you put your finger on it with the free speech, but there have been really important free exercise of religion, religious liberty cases, where you've seen a super majority. One of the most important was actually a 9-0, and it was the most high stakes religious liberty case for, for religious liberty in 15, 20 years, and this was a case called Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran School, where the Obama administration had tried to apply federal non-discrimination law to the hiring and firing of a ministerial employee. And the question was a very, very big question, which is, does federal non-discrimination law reach into the hiring of essentially pastoral-type employees? And 9-0, the court said no. 9-0. And so in some ways, as you were saying, the very fact of agreement in, makes those cases feel less consequential mm -hmm. um, because the agreement is the sort of colors the way we view it. When if you look at it in reality, the cases were incredibly consequential, just incredibly consequential, but not as controversial. And there's a difference between consequential and controversial. So let's talk about Allen v. Milligan. This was a voting rights act case and so far well you tell me the courts especially roberts even though he's an institutionalist and wants to preserve the reputation of the courts he doesn't seem or he hasn't ruled in a way that is particularly holds the voting rights act particularly sacrosanct or i don't want to disparage him he's been willing to say that what might be alleged to be a voting rights uh, violation um, is not. And that, for instance, in uh, North Carolina redistricting, he said that could go ahead. Sometimes we progress as a society and we're no longer suppressing the vote. But that wasn't the decision here. Can you analyze what the court was thinking here and how much of a surprise is it for this court to say, yeah, Alabama, you are suppressing the vote? Well, you know, the, the bottom line is that the sec there, this is Section 2 litigation under the Voting Rights of the, of the Voting Rights Act. And this is still a, a law that federal authorities are required to enforce, that, that courts are required to interpret. And the bottom line here is that Alabama had gerrymandered away an enormous percentage of the black representation uh, of, you know, a representation of black voters. And 
there's always this underlying tension when you're looking at some of these Voting Rights Act cases that are around race, and the tension is this. The defenders of the gerrymand will say, this isn't a racial gerrymand. This is just politics. We're trying to cluster uh, Republican voters and, and disperse Democratic voters. So the key issue isn't white or black. The key issue is Republican or Democratic. And the fact that Democratic voters in the South are mostly black is maybe a, a, a product of history or whatever, but it is not the motivation for the gerrymander. The motivation for the gerrymander is political. A political gerrymander is acceptable, not a racial gerrymander. And then the counter is always something along the lights of, can we please get real here that this is really a racial gerrymander? Um, the political division, yeah, a majority black district is going to tend to be Democratic. The political di division is downstream from the racial division. And the racial division is the real key uh, is the real key division here. That's the core factor here, not the political division, the racial division. And that's always you're going to get the back and forth of that in cases like this. And you know, the Alabama case was very interesting to me when we covered in an oral argument because as we in, as the argument ended, normally when the, the court has seemed to be more prone to leave gerrymandering as a political decision, not a, and, and to see it as a, a division, a, a decision for the political branches to make, not one for the judiciary to make in recent years. But the facts in this case were egregious enough that I left this oral argument thinking uh, Alabama might lose this case. And in fact, you know, the, the court said that the district court's determination that the plaintiffs demonstrated a reasonable likelihood of success on their claim um, wasn't terribly surprising. But again, this is another data point that says it's just too cheap and lazy to say, well, you just got to figure out who wants this outcome, conservatives or liberals. And when conservatives want an outcome or when Republicans want an outcome, they're going to get it from this court. Um, this is a, an example about that. There's the, the Bostock case in the very recent past where Justice Gorsuch and Justice Roberts joined with liberal justices to say that the um, Civil Rights Act uh, included, which its prohibition, it, it prohibitions on against discrimination on the basis of sex, included prohibitions against uh, on the basis of, of against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. That was again an outcome that didn't exactly match what everyone thought the ideological division would be. Uh, so yeah, again, this is a number one of the another of those cases where it's just too easy, cheap, and lazy to say. All I need to do is figure out which side is going to be happy, and then I'm going to know how this case is going to come out. So I want to put you in dialogue with Stephen Vladek, in a way. He was on the show. He is the Texas law professor who wrote a book called The Shadow Docket, and The Shadow Docket is that's uh, his nomenclature, and he will uh, admit that it's uh, incendiary, but it is when justices make, and he is pointing to, major rulings or major decisions without 
giving without the other eight justices sitting in judgment and without offering explanations. And he's saying it's a break from the past and how, we done, how, how we've done it in the past. Now, he writes about this latest decision in Alabama. If you assume that additional majority-minority districts in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and one or two other states would have been safe Democratic seats, then today's SCOTUS ruling strongly suggests that the court's 2022 shadow docket stays wrongly gave Republicans control of the House. So what he's saying there is the the consequence of the shadow docket was to allow situations like the uh, Alabama districts to stand before the midterm votes. But when we saw the full court come to decide about the constitutionality of the Alabama districts, they were ruled unconstitutional. So the shadow docket allowed an occurrence that the entire court did not, and that occurrence gave control of the House to the Republicans. Is that a fair point or at least uh, a thinker? I mean, it's a thinker, but when you're talking about close elections, there's so many different factors that could give a majority one way or the other. Yes, I do think that's the weakness of the point, but what about what he's really saying about the shadow docket is not acting in accordance with the court overall, and that is new and that is a problem. I have mixed feelings about that. So there's part of this sh- the growth of the shadow docket, I think, Mike, was inevitable and was driven by events. So if you have extremely important legal issues that are charging their way up through the courts through injunction practice, injunction practice is when you file a complaint and when you file your complaint you also say seek a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction and you're asking the courts to rule to rule on the case to block state action or to compel state action right away and you're often asking you're always asking the courts the lower courts to rule on an abbreviated record factual record there isn't really a trial available all of the discovery hasn't been done But what you're saying is we're bringing forward enough evidence and the law is sufficiently on our side to where you need to intervene and issue an order blocking state action or requiring state action right now. And so being able to make that immediate ask is not the normal case. And then when the lower courts make a preliminary injunction ruling, unlike the vast majority of preliminary rulings, you're entitled to an immediate appeal. So... When I was litigating constitutional cases, and I did for more than 20 years, almost always I was in that category of lawyers who were in dealing with injunction practice. And so almost always we were filing injunction requests for injunction. And if it was granted, our opponents were appealing right away. And if it was denied, we would appeal right away. And we had this process where you could get before a court of appeals pretty quickly. But traditionally, after the court of appeals, everything slowed down. So if you lost your injunction, in theory, you could apply to this, you know, you could appeal to the Supreme Court, but you knew the Supreme Court was just going to jam it into that normal pipeline. And then the normal pipeline, everything was going to slow down. Well, you might say, good, regular course of business, but a litigator says, bad, bad. That's is the Supreme Court being lazy because the rules allow appeals from injunctions for good reason that these are urgent legal issues and especially if you have a situation of extreme national importance or you have a situation where the circuits are split then why shouldn't the supreme court 
operate quickly in the way the lower courts operate quickly? Why shouldn't they do that? And so there are some categories of cases where it's what the Supreme Court always should have been doing. Now, there's also a situation where they can get carried away. And they are there are situations where they should have held oral argument, for example, but didn't. They issued rulings without hearing uh, without hearing oral argument. Or there are situations where, truth be told, it doesn't really need that quick, fast treatment. Truth be told, it could slow down. And so you're seeing some of the justices on the Supreme Court now saying, "Whoa, we need to tap the brakes on this shadow docket." And so now they're kind of fighting amongst themselves about when do we take these emergency appeals? When, when is something rising to the level where we've got to intervene? Or how much are we gonna then jam all of these cases back into sort of a regular slow grind? And I don't think it is that obvious, the decision, the distinction about when to take a case on that emergency basis versus when to sort of jam it back into that slow grind. And I, what I found, Mike, is it's really remarkable. People tend to like the shadow docket when it comes out their way, and they seem to really hate it when it doesn't. And, and I've yet to see really the articulation of, well, here's when something does arise to that emergency level, and here's where it doesn't. And there is a line there. I agree that there is a line there. I agree that there are some cases that should have been regular course of business that are decided shadow docket and vice versa. It's just the court's working that out right now. But look, part of it's a product of that we're in a highly, highly polarized environment. An enormous amount of what most normal people would call lawmaking is now being handled not by Congress, but by the executive branch through administrative orders or regulations. And all of that is subject to this injunction practice that lands you in the court. I get it that people like, oh, I like the shadows created at dawn. Oh, no, I like the shadows that are crepuscular or twilight shadows. But what Vladek says is it's not just uh, you having experienced the Supreme Court needed to take more cases. It's not just an issue of quantity. It's an issue of the quality of the jurisprudence and the basis for the opinions, which used to be, as he describes it, the individual justice, uh, it's during a recess, you can't assemble all nine justices, but the one justice who was was the appropriate justice to rule that day would think, what would the entire court rule? What would my fellow justices say? And Vladek points to examples where Thurgood Marshall would say, well, I would rule this way, but I think the whole court would rule that way. And he's saying that doesn't happen anymore. The justices rule just if they get the case, they rule how they would like the case to come out. Well, yeah, but that's super temporary. Um, When you have an individual justice issuing a stay, um, and then that is usually a, a very temporary state of affairs. The ability of an individual justice to issue sort of law in the in the practical reality is that individual justices usually stays are very, very, very temporary before they're referred to the entire court. Right. So, but in this case, I mean, in this case, Vladek is saying it was temporary enough to get a, uh, a House of Representatives that we got. Yeah. Again, that's more complicated because there's legal doctrines that say that you really can't make changes to voting districts and systems too close to the election. And so that 
a lot of the injunction practice prior to an election is running headlong into le Supreme Court doctrines that say, wait a minute, we can't, we're not gonna order district changes right close to an election. We're not gonna be making dramatic differences in the way in which people vote close to an election. And this was actually something that came up quite a bit in the 2020 situation because uh, a lot of Republican complaints about the 2020 election were either mounted right on the edge of the election or right after it was over where courts were saying, you could have raised this objection a year ago. You could, if you could have raised this two years ago, you could have raised this a long time ago and you didn't. So again, with these, it gets a lot, when you really dive down into the details, it gets a lot more complicated because the fact of the matter is, if you had a situation where lower courts could be messing on the eve of an election, with district lines, with voting procedures, with things like that, you create your own sort of can, you can create a whole different kind of chaos. And so there is a quite sensible restraint that exists on changes as you're close to an election. So some stays are related to that more than they're related to the merits. And so, yeah, there's a lot of Professor of Vladek's critiques that I think even the justices would agree with, which is one of the reasons why you're seeing them squabbling some about when do we take a shadow docket case. But at the same time, it's just, when you dive into individual details, it's just often not so neat and clean to say that the shadow docket is something that is some sort of evidence of Supreme Court dysfunction. It's a byproduct in many ways of political dysfunction across other branches of government as well. <laughs> David French is a New York Times opinion columnist. He was a senior editor at The Dispatch, where he still hosts the Advisory Opinions podcast. And his most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Succession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And now the spiel, it is not just a spiel, it's an Antwentig. When is it ever just a spiel? A lot of time and attention, love and care get put into these spiels, but especially so the Antwentig. It is our chance to communicate with each other, Antwentig, from the old English word for 21 days or three weeks. Letters, we get letters, mostly in the form of emails, but also some other missives get a, come our way via Reddit and other fora that I shall discuss, but I call them all letters, just like my mom would sometimes call jeans dungarees, and I call them jeans. The kids these days probably have a different term. Remember jeggings? No, you don't. Benjamin Gerald, Gerald maybe, Gerald, wrote to me and said, Mike, admittedly, I've put in less time on research on the Teamsters Concrete Supreme Court ruling than you took in talking about it in your latest spiel, but I think you and others in the media are missing something key. Wet concrete is a perishable product. You know, you don't think of it that way, right? You think of concrete as the opposite of perishable. This is me, by the way, my reverie, not Ben Gerald. You think of it as uh, solid and, well, not the wet part, but you don't think of it like, oh, fruit or an egg in the hot sun. But no, it is. It's perishable. Gerald goes on. However, you miss the fact that not only does concrete spoil, harden slash cure, but that when it does, it literally turns 
into a rock in whatever vessel it's contained, 10 yards of concrete in a truck, is now a 40,500-pound paperweight inside your truck. Good luck removing it. By the way, he then provides the math. Uh, It's 10 yards of wet concrete, 10 yards, 270 cubic feet. Concrete's 150 pounds cubic foot, 270 times 150 is 4,500. Didn't check his math. Appreciate it. It's got to be right. He goes on to say the Teamsters effectively removed every truck full of wet concrete from service for a long time. Only they didn't. This was addressed in the court proceedings. Quick thinking employees who were not unionized or uh, sympathetic to the union intervened and they made sure even though the concrete did harden, it didn't destroy any of the trucks. But I do love the fact that Ben Gerold, a physical engineer, Ben Gerold Structural, Structural Engineering LLC, got in touch with me, did some math, was worried about the trucks hardening. I love when that happens. Andy Sauer on a more, oh, what would be the word for bitter or less sweet note? Anyway, Andy Sauer starts by writing an Antwintig moment, spelling it ant-ant-twig. I think some people used to pronounce it that way. When referring to the Argentine soccer legend Lionel Messi, you said Lionel. I did, because his name is Lionel Messi. Oh no, says Andy Sauer. I believe it's Lionel. And it comes from Lionel Messi, and for once... Yes, of course, it's Lionel But I get names wrong. I get names wrong all the time. I try not to, but I do do fall into these traps. I would say on the actual pronunciation of foreign names, which have any bit of variation from how an American would pronounce them, I'm, I'm poor. I'm in the 25th or so percentile. This is different from the fact that I, for some reason, I just found this out by doing a show where I asked myself to pronounce corroborate hundreds and hundreds of times, and instead I said corroborate. Don't know why. Weird. Weird that I have that in me, but I did. So it came out like an exorcism. Hopefully it will never show up again. But the mispronunciation of names is different from the mispronunciation of words, for which I have no excuse. Names are hard. I have never had a great ear for other languages. Uh, Sight-wise, I'm good, but I try. So my statistic called just out of the ether is that I am somewhere in the lowest quartile when it comes to accurate pronunciations. But I have to assure you, I am in the highest quartile when it comes to attempts. I swear to you, if there's a name with Lionel and Lionel, I may have just not thought to pronounce it correctly. I just saw Lionel and said it, but you're right. I've heard Lionel on all those World Cup broadcasts. But when there is a name that I know that I should pronounce correctly, I know it's you to pronounce correctly, I put in a lot of time. I was talking about a anthropologist from the University of Barcelona named Joao Zilhau. Maybe, but it's not Zilhau, and it's a Portuguese name, even though he's in Barcelona. It's Portuguese, and sometimes the Portuguese kind of swallow their L's, so it's maybe Zilhau. I, I tried so hard to get it right. I looked up ways that professionals, professional Portuguese speakers, said this gentleman's name. Here's from a broadcast where they interviewed him and introduced him. E o nosso convidado de hoje é João Zilhão, arqueólogo. João, muito obrigado. 
Obrigado, eu. O João licenciou-se em 82 pela Faculdade de Letras de Lisboa. And yeah, if you're thinking, that's Portuguese? I thought it was Russian. No, it's a weird thing. The Portuguese say this. Sometimes people mistake our language for Russian. I don't know what I mistook it for, but I will now play for you my attempts at trying to say João Zilhau, which is certainly not pronounced Zilhau. The Times quotes João Zilho, João Zilho, Zilhao, João Zilho, an archaeologist. I'm sure I got that wrong. I even looked up how to say João Zilhao, João Zileo, Zileo, really? João Zilhao, an archaeologist. So that's it. That's all I could do. I could try, people. And I do. Everything I do, I do it for you. This is in reference to not the gist the show, but my substack, Pesca Profundities. I ask you, the listeners of the show, to weigh in. I had a substack post about the end of succession, and in it I talked about the poet John Berryman. A poem of his was uh, gave the name of the episode title of the last episode of every season, of succession. And there was a constant theme if you watch the show, or even if you didn't, it's one of those shows where you feel it thrust upon you, even if you didn't watch it, where one of the main characters, Kendall, has is always depicted in water, always near water. John Berryman himself uh, threw himself into the Minneapolis River in Minnesota, committing suicide uh, by drowning. And I had a Substack post talking about all these strains of water and this character of Kendall Roy. And I titled it, well, I actually changed the title because I don't like question marks in titles. Originally it was Did Kendall Drown? And then I retitled it, Kendall Has Always Been Drowning. It's much better. And I had a picture of the actor, uh, well, I guess it was in character, Kendall Roy looking out into the sea. This picture was ubiquitous. It was one of the last images from the show. But someone, most people like the Substack post, which can be found at Pesca Profundities. But someone, spoiled boy, <laughs> maybe this is his shtick, wrote in and said, why did you feel the need to send an email with did Kendall drown in the subject line? What happens is you send, I send all my Substacks. You, this is an auto setting, it goes to all the subscribers, and then the title of the substack is the subject line. So when the title was, Did Kendall Drown?, the subject line was, Did Kendall Drown?, if you've seen the show, however, do you think that Did Kendall Drown?, that question is a spoiler? It doesn't even definitively say anything. So I guess you know that Kendall wasn't depicted being torn apart by leopards, right? Then I wouldn't ask if he drowned unless some of his particular body pieces were spit by said leopards into the Euphrates. Did Kendall Drown?, how is that even a spoiler? Spoiled boy very uh, sweetly and kindly says, needlessly douchey spoiler, dude. But I just ask you, do you think there was a spoiler? It is so very hard to know. You, spoiled boy, will not be the lobstar of the Antwintig. This week, we have a lobstar and a sub-lobstar that I gotta say, in many, many an Antwintig would have won the lobstar. So, Chuck Walla, keep at it. Chuck Walla writes on the Reddit page, and the just Reddit page is uh, doing quite well, and I have to tell you, it's my go-to for interactions and discussions. 
Chakwala writes, multiple times this episode, Mike referred to Sufis as being a religious order concerned with the welfare of animals, including insects. No, no, no. Sufism or Sufism is an ancient branch of Islam commonly understood to be Islamic mystics, whirling dervishes, and the like. Some modern and Western Sufis abstain from eating meat. It's a peripheral tenant. I believe Mike was actually thinking of Jainism, an Indian religion related to Hinduism that believes in abstention from violence to all living things, including insects, is its highest ethical priority. Indeed, I was. So that alone won't get you sub-lobstar status, though I appreciate it. This did. Chuckwalla adds, or put another way, it's actually the Jains who strain to refrain from causing an insect's pain, while the Sufis are a sect who one wouldn't expect to directly object to insect neglect. To that, I say, respect. Also, I admit it was goofy to have said Sufi. Such a good Reddit post, but not the best. The best was by one of my best listeners of all time, Tony Ragusia, Ragusia, Ragusa, Ragusia. See, that's, that's me trying to say it. Tony Ragusia, or maybe Ragusia, is a psychiatrist who listens to the show. His brother, actually, and I worked in public radio together, and he had a really cool podcast about public radio called The Pub. And uh, I knew Adam uh, Ragusia before I knew Tony Ragusia, I believe. Adam left the world of public radio and is making millions of dollars making pizzas online. Side note. But Tony listens to the show. He listens carefully. Whenever I talk about an issue of psychology or psychiatry, he weighs in with just such authoritative advice. I couldn't appreciate it more. And this was on the long interview I did with Virginia Soul Smith about obesity. She wouldn't like that term. And uh, the fat liberation movement. I got more comments on this than just about anything I've done in weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's great because I really wanted to highlight that episode. Uh, If you listen to that episode, it was a whole episode, 30-something minute conversation. And I really thought the interactions, not everyone agreeing with me, a lot of people appreciating the time and attention I brought to it. Some people, you know, saying Mike couldn't understand. Oh, I could. You should see pictures of me in college, dude. But Tony had a uh, post wherein... He laid out all his thoughts about the medical model of thinking of uh, obesity as an ailment in medical terms. And then everyone who wrote in to comment, he gave an answer to sometimes a lengthy, but always a well-thought-out answer. Just really the perfect kind of listener who's been with me and is always uh, giving me advice over the years. And that is why, Tony Ragusia, you are the lobstar of this Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 